All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Cale. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. LifePoint family, welcome back. Uh, it's good to be with you. I want to take a moment, actually a few minutes here before we jump in, just to celebrate some of God's activity, both locally and also globally. So last Sunday, uh, for those of us who were here, I hope that was a blessing to you as much as it was uh, to me. We celebrated Life Change Sunday. Uh, here at the Delaware campus, 26 people took the step to be baptized, and we were thrilled. Yeah, praise God. Across all of our six campuses, 121 people took that step uh, last Sunday, and so we're grateful for, for that. Um, even, even better than the numbers are really the stories. So just to share a few stories with you, we had a mother and a son get baptized here, a father and a son, a mother and a son. One gentleman who got baptized was his first Sunday here. Uh, we had multiple students, college students, members of our 1825 life groups uh, who got baptized. I know of at least one college young lady that, as far as we know, as I know, no background in faith whatsoever, but her friends began to invite her. She started to come and in the last few weeks gave her life to Christ and took the step to be baptized here last week. Across campuses, uh, so our, the Marion campus, right, we you know, launched that campus out of, of this campus. So they baptized seven people last Sunday, and uh, six of the seven were over the age of 40, right? Uh, several folks from the steel mill who work there getting baptized. So Paul was just uh, over the moon excited about what God is doing there. One lady who got baptized at our Lewis Center campus. Turns out one of our members here a number of months ago was praying, had, a, had an invite card to one of our series and said, Lord, you know, I've, I need to give this to somebody. Who do you want me to give it to? He was stopped at an intersection and right then his co-worker drove by and his co-worker and him had been talking about some matters regarding faith and so snapped a picture of the invite card, sent it to the co-worker, said, hey, I was praying about this. You drove by. I just want to invite you to our church. Well, she ended up coming to our Lewis Center campus for a number of months and took the step to get baptized last Sunday. You can bring that back to that step of obedience. At our Worthington campus, this is one of my favorite story. So Pastor Ed, who led our Westerville campus for uh, uh, several years, who's now our interim pastor at the Plain City campus. So uh, he was over at Worthington, right? He's the traveling evangelist right now, but he was over at Worthington because his father-in-law, uh, the one baptism at Worthington was Pastor Ed's father-in-law, who has not only been uh, not a believer, but in some ways kind of hostile to the faith for decades and decades. And they, they as a family have witnessed to him for over 20 years. And Ed said in one of his sermons a couple of months ago, he asked folks to raise their hands. He looked back and he sees his father-in-law raising his hand. I think he said he almost fell over in the pulpit. And, uh, and so Ed got a chance to baptize him on Sunday. And uh, it was, yeah, praise God. Dan, Dan, our teaching pastor there at Worthington said, Kale, there wasn't a dry eye in the entire uh, auditorium. So Locally, that's some of what God is doing in the life of our church. Globally, I was a part of our team that went to India uh, last uh, week, and I apologize. I, I got some feedback. Hey, kid, we didn't know there was an India mission trip. That's on me. I, I try to mention those as we lead up to them, and I, I did not mention that in the weeks leading up, so I apologize for that. Uh, by the way, speaking of that, I'm going to throw a graphic up here. So all of our global mission trips for next year are up and available. You can apply for these now. 
Uh, and so this is on our app on the resources tab. If you hit missions, and that'll take you to our missions website, or you can just go directly to the website. Uh, and so on our website, hit the global tab and then upcoming trips. And so these are where we're headed. This is where we're headed in 2024. And, you know, we have a large church and there's only so many spots. And so if you are sensing God's call to go on one of these trips, I would tell you, pray through that. Don't do that flippantly or lightly, but pray through it and then don't wait because these spots do fill up relatively uh, quickly. So you can begin looking over those, being aware of those, marking those in your calendar, praying for those trips and applying for them now. Uh, but this past week in India, we got a chance to partner with the local pastors and churches there and sharing the gospel with hundreds, if not thousands of folks. We worked in 32 different villages. We did more than 100 home visits, us and another uh, two groups from other churches, uh, gospel presentations, and 160 folks, more than 160 folks professed faith in Christ there in India. I was most encouraged by the local pastors and the local churches there. They are doing some incredible work, and those folks are focused. Uh, in the midst of a, a difficult environment at times. They, they face persecution there, unlike uh, we do uh, here. It is more intense there, and they are out sharing the gospel, and they are focused on what God is doing. So I hope you're encouraged to know that Jesus is alive and well in India. The Holy Spirit is active there as he is here and doing some extraordinary things. So can we just really point being, let's just take a moment and praise God and thank him for all that he's doing. Um, yeah. And then speaking of reaching folks and particularly thinking about our community, so Trunktober is coming up October 29th. This is sort of our Trunk or Treat uh, event. This is one of the few church-wide, it's really run by LifePoint Kids, but it's open to anyone and everyone. And uh, one of the few sort of whole church events we do community outreach-wise uh, to the community. So uh, I just want to encourage you to make this work well, for this to be effective in reaching folks. Uh, it requires a few things. First, it requires folks signing up to do a trunk, right? To decorate a trunk, and we give out prizes for that. The competition's pretty stiff, right? Folks, take this seriously, but to make this uh, a really good event, it takes about 35 to 40 trunks, and I think last I heard we were at three, so we're pretty much there, and so uh, if you guys would be willing... If you'd be willing to sign up for that now and help our LPK folks, right, so they're not having a heart attack as we lead up to the event, that would be awesome. You can sign up using the app uh, or you can uh, email uh, Ann or Laura, let them know, hey, I will do a trunk. And then if we're going to be effective in this, it not only requires trunks, but it requires people inviting people. So there are some yard signs on your way out today. These invite cards are at Guest Central. Grab some of these, hit your neighborhoods and family members and friends. Let's invite folks to come be a part of this. I would love, I think uh, a successful event for us, I would love to see a thousand people come to this. Not because that's a magical number, because I think that means if that many people come, it means we've done a good job of inviting, right? And so let's get out and invite folks uh, to be a part of this as we hope to connect them ultimately uh, to Christ. All right, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Revelation 16. We got a lot to cover this morning, so uh, strap in with me. We are continuing week seven now of this series that we're calling New. Big idea of the series, something we've said every single week. Uh, these will be in your notes here, what's on the screens. Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar. 
right? Revelation's more about present hope than a future calendar. So Revelation, we've said, is a letter that was written really by, by the Lord, by Jesus, but through John, the Apostle John, to the churches and the Christians in the first century Rome, under Christians who were under intense pressure and intense persecution. That, that background is important to keep in mind this morning to understand what it is we're going to see. 40,000 Christians have been killed, by some estimates, right during this time, been martyred, their blood shed for the sake of Jesus by uh, the Roman Empire, by the Roman authorities, and by the people of Rome. And in the midst of that pressure, and that trial, and that persecution, that tribulation, God shows John who himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos as a criminal simply because of sticking true to his faith, he gives John this vision of Jesus as Jesus is right now in heaven. And he gives him a vision of how all this is going to end, the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. And so in light of that, John then writes, and Jesus tells John, write to the churches to stay faithful. Christians, stay faithful in the midst of the hardship. Don't lose sight. Look for and long for the return of Christ. And so that's why we say it's more about present hope than figuring out a future calendar. It's not, the goal of the book of Revelation is not to give us, you know, exact dates and times and this is when this is going to happen and this is when this is going to happen. It's really a call to say, hey, look at Christ See the cross that he won at the cross. See that one day he's going to return and he'll finish what he started. See that he is good and he is in control. And stay faithful in the midst of the trial and in the tribulation. Because that day is going to come when Jesus is going to return and make all things new. And wipe every tear from our eyes. It's more about present hope than it is about a future calendar. All right, specifically today, we're going to look at Revelation 16. And just to sort of recap for us a little bit, so chapter 12, uh, there was a woman and a dragon, right? The dragon representing Satan, the woman representing Israel, and then the church. And, and it says the dragon makes war on the offspring of the woman, this idea that, hey, there are two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the Lamb, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the world, what's sometimes called the kingdom of Babylon. And so you see that those two are at odds with one another. Chapter 13, there's a beast that comes out of the sea and then a beast that comes out of the earth. And together with the dragon, they form this sort of unholy trinity, right? You got God the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit. You got dragon, beast, and beast. And they and their kingdom, once again, often referred to as Babylon. If you're wondering why that is, Babylon was an ancient real kingdom that wiped out the kingdom of Judah. But also in the Bible, Babylon is universalized to sort of describe uh, any, the, the, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. And so in chapter 13, we saw that kingdom that represents the kingdom of darkness and all the people who reject and follow, the, or who reject the Lord and follow that kingdom take the mark of this beast. Chapters 15 and 16, this is where we're getting to this morning. 15 introduces sort of the final wrath of God. And we've seen this already with the seals being broken and then the trumpets being blasted. And, and that was, hey, one-fourth of the earth and one-third of the earth today represents in some ways the beginning of the end. In Revelation 16, God's full justice against sin, full judgment against sin and evil comes. And it comes in the form of seven bowls of wrath. And it really does mark again the beginning of the end. And we're going to see it more in 17 and 18 with the fall of Babylon, uh, which is described here, but also is described more fully in the next two chapters. Now, as we hit 16 this morning, I just want to acknowledge, I would imagine many of us are a little wrath weary, right? If you've been following along with this series, you know, like this has been heavy. 
And if you're here today and it's your first time, uh, you may be thinking, I came on the wrong day, right? Or if you're not a believer, you're like, I, I mean, the, the wrath of God, really? I get it. And at the same time, I would ask you to uh, withhold, right? Withhold the judgment of God's judgment and, and just say, hey, let's, let's stick with it. Stick with me here because before we get to the new heaven and the new earth, we can't just skip over the parts that we maybe wrestle with or don't like to get to the parts that we do like. We have to go through the word. And so we're heading into 16 today and we're going to see uh, again the heavy reality of God's justice and judgment against sin. So let's look at verse 1 in chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Now just to pause there, I really think in light of all we've seen in Revelation that these are symbolic, okay? So don't go out today and look up, be like, so, you know, maybe I can see an angel pouring out a bull, right? It's, it's symbolic. These bulls are symbolic. And these judgments we're going to see that are heavy are symbolic of the reality of God's judgment against wrath. I don't think it's literal. And so it says, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Most commentators I read said, hey, what's going on with the water here? So Rome sits on the Mediterranean, right? And to, to destroy the waters would have completely destroyed the Roman economy. And I think in some ways it's also universal, not just against Rome in particular, but the idea here is it's, it's complete economic collapse of the world system and of civilization. It's God unraveling the system of the world, bringing judgment in full right? In, in past judgments, we saw, again, one-third or one-fourth. Here it says, every living thing in the sea died. Verse 5 says, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, the, the people on whom you're bringing these judgments, the ones who have followed the beast, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve." And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You know, as we read this in some ways, it's almost like the, the section here anticipates our response of, gosh, isn't that harsh, right? Giving them blood to drink and killing every little living thing in the sea. And the angel speaks here and says, this is because of God's justice. It's not because of God's petulant anger. He's not having a temper tantrum. He says, just are you, O God. Holy are you, O God. And so I want to note a couple of things here. We talked about a few of these things a few weeks ago, and I'm going to bring them up again, right? One, God's judgment is not random, okay? It's not just randomly shooting out. It, it says, right, it's on the, the kingdom of the beast. And, and it's, there's a sense here in which you've got the believers, right, who are a few chapters ago cried out to God, those who'd been martyred, who'd had their blood shed for the sake of Jesus saying, Lord, where are you? When are you going to act? When are you going to bring justice? We, we stayed faithful to Jesus and, and our reward in, in, in this life in some ways, we got murdered for that. When are you going to, and if you remember, God tells them to wait for a while. The waiting is now over. 
And I would also say this, as we, as we sit and we square face to face with the reality of God's judgment, I said this a few weeks ago, we have to remember that God's anger against sin is different than our anger. We oftentimes look at God and his justice or his judgment and we think, you know, gosh, is that like our temper tantrums where we get really mad at something and out of control, our emotions flare up? And the answer is no. God's justice against sin, his judgment of sin, it is because of his character. It's because of his holiness. It is a settled opposition to everything that is morally evil and wrong. And, and ultimately, this is a good thing. I know it sounds hard. It's a good thing that no sin, no wickedness gets swept under the eternal rug. Okay? Let me say that again. No sin, no wickedness, no evil gets swept under the eternal rug. For all of us who have ever asked the question, God, where are you in this? For all those in Christ who've cried out for justice and said, Lord, do you not see what's happening in the world? Do you not see what's going on? Where are you? When are you going to act? The answer is here. Revelation 16, at the end of time, God is being patient with humanity now. He's being patient with you. He's being patient with me. He's being patient, calling people to repentance. But there will be a time when that patience comes to an end. And there'll be a time when his justice and his judgment will be poured out against every prideful action, every rape, every murder, every genocide, every lie, every evil, every unjust action, prideful thought or deed. It does not just get swept under the eternal rug. God does not look at sin and just shrug his shoulders and say, you know, it's no big deal. And one of our other pastors brought this up this week, and I like the way he was saying it. He said, guys, we, we all want justice, but oftentimes we don't want any judgment, right? I want justice, but we don't want any sort of judgment. But you can't have justice without judgment, right? If somebody comes and murders someone else, and the judge comes and says, you know what? I forgive you. <laughs> it's like, what justice is there in that? To come and just say, you know what? Like, I forgive there has to be, right, some sort of punishment, some sort of judgment on that wrongdoing. And God, because of his perfect character and his holiness, he is just, and he does judge, and he does punish evil doing and wickedness. It's a, again, not a petulant anger, but a settled opposition to all that is evil and wrong. And I think it really should do two things, as we'll talk about this morning. For those of us who, if you're running in rebellion against God, it should cause you to pause. And to really think about, I man, where are you in relationship to the Lord? And for those of us who have a relationship to the Lord, it should cause us to rejoice and say, man, this was me. This was my sin. And yet Christ took it on the cross on my behalf. We'll get there though. Let's keep going. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. I looked into what, what exactly is this talking about? Like, is it a sunburn, right? It, the picture here is sun's earth, the sun's heat being so intensified that it literally like burns people, like tongues of fire. And you're like, is that literal? Is that figurative? i not for sure. I think it's probably symbolic, but I think here's the point. If you're reading through this and going, these images are kind of grotesque, blood and fire burning people, it's purposeful. 
Again, we've said all along, the purpose, what are the purposes of the images? Why apocalyptic literature? Why such heavy images? Because it's trying to capture our imagination and help us to understand something that's true. It's bringing us face to face with the holiness of God and helping us to understand the horrible images or helping us to understand the horrible nature of sin and the weightiness of God's judgment against sin. I think it really is meant to wake us up out of our flippancy. Because if we're honest in our culture, let's just be honest with each other, we scoff at the idea of God's wrath when we should shudder. And we talk lightly about sin. We even make a lot of jokes about it when really we should weep and we should say, Lord, what do we do to turn from this? I, I can't tell you how, you, you've seen it as well, right? I can't tell you how many TV shows and movies I've watched over the last decade that just make such lighthearted jokes about sexual sin, about pornography, like, it, there's a joke in so many things I've watched where it's just, ha-ha, isn't that funny? It's like, what's funny about using someone else as an object for your own gratification? What's wrong with us? We've become so desensitized to these things that we take those things that we should be going, Lord, I know this is wrong. I want to turn from it. I want to find healing, and I want to find mercy, and I want to find forgiveness. And we make jokes about them. Ha-ha, isn't that hilarious? When it's not. And it's not just porno. I'm not picking on any particular sin. I'm saying in our culture, there's just a general lightheartedness about it's no big deal. And I think these moments in Revelation and these images in Revelation are supposed to be like a bucket of ice water thrown at somebody who's drunk. It's meant to snap us out of it, out of our stupor, and say, wait a second, this is serious. The weightiness of sin and the holiness of God and as we'll point to here in a bit, the love of God and the weightiness of what Christ did for us at the cross where he paid for every sin. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. If you hear the word plagues, there, there's a lot of uh, parallels here to the Exodus story, right? Tons of parallels back to the Exodus story where God delivers Israel and judges Egypt and sort of the whole time Pharaoh and Egypt are like shaking their hand at God even as the world falls apart around them. And so note that refrain there because we're going to see it several times. They did not repent and give him glory. They cursed the name of God. The fifth angel, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Note the pattern, okay? People are faced with the obvious. Like, hey, we're in the wrong. God's judgment is coming. And honestly, as I was reading that, I just wrote to myself, this is the terrible nature of sin, is that it blinds us. Like we refuse to acknowledge, like even as we know, like I know that I'm running this way. Or it blinds us in such a way that some of us, like you're running in open rebellion against God and everyone in your life can see it. Everyone in your life is like, you are running off a cliff and the only person who's blind to it is you. Or the scriptures also seem to indicate, even when we sort of fool ourselves, like deep down we know, like we know, and yet we still shake our fist at God, even as he comes and even as things happen in our life when the world is falling around, around us, and we just, we won't submit. We won't humble ourselves. Continue to say, no, Lord, I will not submit and accept the mercy that you're offering through Christ. Can I just plead with you, if that's where you are today, humble yourself. Turn to Christ. Don't keep running in opposition to him. 
shaking your fist and refusing to, to turn. Verse 12, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. There's like, I read one commentary that gave eight different interpretations to this, so I'm not going to walk you through all those. So uh, once again, I think it's symbolic, and I think the point being, so all throughout redemptive history, if you read the Bible, God will dry up bodies of water or divert bodies of water, the Red Sea, the Jordan, in bringing deliverance for his people. And I think the same thing is happening here. It seems at first, though, it's going to be for the enemies, in the enemy's favor. But this actually turns out to be in the final battle, God working and bringing out victory and deliverance for his people. Verse 13 says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So here we've got this sort of final climactic moment coming where the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ are coming up against one another. And yet right before we get there, note this, verse 15. It seems like it's out of nowhere, but I think it's purposeful. It's Jesus speaking. And he says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. In the midst of the gathering darkness, the world's getting dim. Jesus speaks and says, church, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay vigilant, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then right back to verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, lots of people get caught up on Armageddon, by the way. Um, I've done extensive research. I have discovered exactly where it is. And I will now tell you. <laughs> I have no idea. So... Um, <clears throat> The Armageddon represents, right, the final darkness or the final battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly where is that. There are some different ideas. Personally, I think that trying to figure out the exact location kind of misses the point. I don't really think that's the chief question. I think the chief question is who wins? And in the next few verses, you're going to see it's, it's not much of a battle. <laughs> and in Revelation 19, Jesus shows up and a sword comes out of his mouth and the battle's pretty much over. And it's just, I think it's to remind us, guys, there is no real challenge to his sovereignty and his authority. It's why the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? They plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. When you, <laughs> when you look around at the world today, Sometimes it can feel like, man, it feels like the kingdom of darkness is winning sometimes. And we need to be reminded what John is reminding us of here, what Jesus is reminding us of here is, no, Christ already won at the cross where he, he dealt a decisive blow to Satan, to hell, and to death itself. And one day he's going to finish it. There's no real challenge to his authority. Jesus wins, right? That's the point. That's the end of the battle of Armageddon. In fact, you see it right here. Revelation 16, 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And if you hear echoes of the cross there, right? It is finished. You should. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God. Here it is again. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. 
I looked, I was reading in one of the commentaries that mentioned the largest hailstones that have ever fallen recorded are 2.25 pounds in Bangladesh in 1986, and that killed 92 people. So 100 pounds, whether figurative or literal, the point is utter devastation, right? A storm unlike anything the world has ever seen, and it brings with it complete victory of the Lord over the forces of darkness and the complete judgment of God against all evil. So here's my question. What do we do with that? Right? As we stare right into the wrath of God and we come face to face with the holiness of God, what are we to do with this? With the time that we have left, right, I want to drive us towards some application this morning. I'm going to give us four points of application um, before I do that, I do want to speak one word. I've had a couple of questions about the rapture, right? So, um, quick word on the rapture, right? So, some of us, you hear that and you're like, yes, finally, right? The rapture. Others of us, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to the faith. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? So, I just want to give a, a quick question. I think the rapture comes up. So, First Thessalonians 4 talks about Jesus coming back and us being caught up with him in the air, right? That he tanks, takes the saints with him. Um, and there's a fair bit of debate. That's where we get the concept of the rapture. Fair bit of debate around, does that happen before all this really bad stuff happens? Does it happen in like the middle of all this really bad stuff happening? Or does it happen after all the really bad stuff happens? So the phrases for that are pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, right? Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, right? And I, I have my own opinion which I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you arguing with me in your head right now as we go to application. But here's, here's what I think should be of most importance to us as we think about this. So I think for some of us, there's a fear around, gosh, are we going to, is the church going to be here like enduring all this? And the answer is, I'm, I'm not sure. But here's what I would say, right? If, if God takes the saints with him before the worst of this comes, that doesn't mean we're going to be spared suffering. Tribulation's going on right now, guys. Some of our partner pastors in India have been murdered for their faith. Persecution happens now. The, the church, Christians are not, are not spared that. We're not promised that. Jesus promised us, in fact, you will suffer in this life. And at the same time, for those of us looking at these things and reading these things, and, it's, and it brings fear, there's, I don't believe there's any reason if you're in Christ, that you should fear, okay? This, the wrath of God is not aimed at those who have come under the banner of the cross. That wrath, as I'm going to talk about here, was absorbed by Jesus on his shoulders at the cross, and you have no reason to fear. So if we're here through this, right, through the end time, God will sustain and protect his people, all right? And I don't think any, any view of the rapture, regardless of your view, has any, any really effect on the next four things that I'm going to say. All right? So four things, all about Jesus. Worship Jesus, stay awake for Jesus, share Jesus, and get right with Jesus. All right? Let's talk about them one at a time. Worship Jesus. I think when we come face to face with the holiness of God, it should cause us, as Wesley talked about earlier, to just worship Jesus for all he's done and to marvel at the love of God for sinners like us. And there was a time, right, where the, it was one guy, one time a year, going into the Holy of Holies. And he had to purify himself over and over and over. And he was the only one allowed in the presence of God. And now, every single believer in and through Christ, because of what Jesus has done at the cross, can stand and bow your head right now and just be in the presence of God. We ought to worship Jesus and thank him. Looking, looking at this going, Lord, this is what I deserved. 
This is what we deserve because of our sin. And Jesus, that's what you took on the cross. God so loved you and me and sinners like us that he provided a way for us to be saved. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. It says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you are honest with yourself, all right, let's just put away all the things the culture tells us about us being great people, right? And it's society that screws up. If you're honest with yourself, you know, you know deep down. I know deep down when I look inside, I see stuff in there that I don't like. And I know that I've been created by a good God and I have violated his standard, his law, and I am accountable to him. And yet, the good news of the gospel for you and for me is that God so loved you and me, he sent Jesus and Jesus went to the cross and said, I'll take that judgment upon myself that they might be forgiven and set free. Worship him. Thank him. Be in awe that Christ, you took all of this justice, all of this judgment upon yourself. That's what, if you're here and you're wondering, like, what does a guy dying on a cross have to do with me? It's this. This judgment. This justice against sin. Jesus was absorbing that in his own body at the cross for you and for me. That when God looks at you, if you are under Christ, he does not see your sin, past, present, or future. He sees the blood of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus over your over your life and in your place. And I think that should, that should lead us to a place where we just worship, where we say, Jesus, thank you. You took what I deserved. Secondly, stay awake for Jesus. It is so interesting to me that right before the final battle, in the gathering gloom, in the, as things get darker, Jesus speaks. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, and blessed is the one who stays awake. The idea here, guys, we're not just sitting around waiting for the rapture to happen, right? That, that is not, as things get darker, the church can't retreat. We can't, we can't sit on the sidelines and say, man, it's just terrible that the world's going to pot, isn't it? We're to go out and witness for Christ and to say, look, all right, and to stay, to stay vigilant, to stay awake and be looking for his returning. If you notice, you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about this a lot, a lot. Stay awake, stay vigilant, don't fall asleep, which means there must be a tendency for believers to get distracted and to fall asleep. And I don't know about you, but I think in our culture, America, 21st century, just in the, where we live, when we live, we fall asleep through distraction, we fall asleep through entertainment, we fall asleep through pleasure, we fall asleep through the, the pursuit of wealth, and sometimes just sheer plain old busyness. <laughs> We start thinking about the things of God. We start thinking about changes we need to make in our life. We start getting on fire for the Lord. And then we're like, oh, I got that thing to go to. I got another event I need. To, oh, the Buckeyes are playing. <laughs> None of those things are bad. But church, stay awake. Jesus is saying to you and me this morning, stay vigilant, stay awake, stay focused on what is most important. And remember why it is that Jesus put you here. So can I ask you just to take a moment to consider and ask yourself the question, are you asleep? Are you awake or are you asleep? Are you focused or are you distracted? And what steps would it take for you to come awake again? If you're asleep, what steps would it take for you to come awake again? If you're distracted, what steps would it take for you to refocus 
on why it is that Jesus has placed you on this earth. Number three, share Jesus. I really think, church, the, we don't like to talk about wrath. We don't like to talk about judgment. But if we're willing to sit there and face it, I believe it should motivate us towards evangelism. It should motivate us. If we really believe this, if we're saying, hey, God is a just and holy God, and people really are, like we're sinners in deep need of a Savior, we ought to be motivated to go tell people about the Savior that God has provided. We ought to be motivated. We ought to want this for others, to go to them and say, hey, this, this is coming. Yes, time, time is short. It's not going to last forever. God's being patient with you. But man, he's provided a way. Humble yourself. Turn. Turn to Christ. Love him. See what he's done for you at the cross. One of the things I was most struck by but by the pastors in India, I told you, was just their focus on evangelism. Out, I mean, we ask them, like, what are you guys going to do next week? And you have to expect after a week like that, they're like, I'm probably just going to relax for a week. And they're like, we're going to go do more house visits. <laughs> like, goodness sakes, right? Praise God. Like, we're going to go share the gospel. That's what we're going to do. And I think it should motivate and challenge. It, it, it honestly convicted me and inspired me. And I think it should challenge us. So just as a practical challenge, here's, here's a challenge for our church. This life group term, okay, every term is 12 weeks. We've got about 10 weeks left in the life group term. So first week in November, our term ends. This life group term, can I challenge you to pray for one person who does not know and love Jesus, one person that you know that doesn't know Christ, and to ask God specifically for an opportunity to have a gospel conversation with that person before this term is out, all right? Don't force it, but look for, I don't think this is rocket science. When we say, how do we, how do we scatter more gospel seed and trust that God will make it grow? We pray, we look for opportunities. How much would change if we woke up each day just saying, Lord, I recognize there are people in my life who don't know Jesus, at my, at my workplace, in my classroom, in my family, and I want to share the gospel with them. What if that were chief on our minds? So can I challenge you one person? one opportunity. Pray and ask God one opportunity before this term is out that I might share Christ with that person. And just remember, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. The small things, small steps in obedience. Remember, right, I told you the story of our member here, just praying, Lord, what do I do with this card? <laughs> and that leads to someone getting baptized. Two of the folks that got baptized here on Sunday, do you know the first way they connected to our church? Trunktober last year. All right, because somebody invited him to an event. And that led to a connection. That connection led to hearing the gospel and that led to taking a step in faith. Small steps in obedience, right? Can I challenge you? One person, this life group turn. Pray, pray about it as a life group together. Share it with, share with someone in your life group who you're praying for. All right, last one. And this one really is, so the first three were really for believers. This one is if you're here today and, and you're not walking with Jesus, right? Get right with Jesus. Get right with Jesus. All through this passage, I told you, there are so many parallels to the Exodus. And in the Exodus story, you see God judging the people who have oppressed his people, delivering his people. But this people, by and large, the world is falling around, falling down around them, right? Their God's being dismantled. Their kingdom falling apart. And yet, instead of humbling themselves, they shake their fist at God and refuse to repent. Can I just plead with you this morning? I, my sense is there are some folks here this morning. This is your life right now. <laughs> your life is falling down around you. Maybe physically. Maybe financially. Maybe it's relationally. 
maybe it's just emotionally and mentally. Like your world is falling apart. And you have a choice today where you can just get mad at God. How could you do this? And you curse God, right? Or you can turn to him. And you can come under his grace and his mercy today. You can accept, right? The Lord, I believe, through all of that. We said it a few weeks ago. C.S. Lewis, right, said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he screams at us in our pain. Through all of that, God is inviting you, being patient with you. Turn. Turn from sin. Don't shake your fist at God. Open your hand to him, and he'll come and he'll heal. He'll come and he'll save spiritually. Come, turn to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God today. And not in a like, I'm just scared of hell, right? I heard a pastor say once, you don't, nobody gets into heaven just because they're scared of hell. You don't get the hell scared out of you, right? You get captivated by the love of Christ for you. So I would plead with you today, if your life is falling down around you, see the man upon the cross. See Jesus there for you. See the God who so loved you that he provided a way. See the man upon the cross who took your sin upon his shoulders that you might be made whole and made right with the God who created you. Let me pray for you. Father, as we head into the rest of this term, God, I pray over this challenge this morning to be praying for one person. Lord, I'm asking that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would increase our desire to share the gospel. And then God, you'd not only increase our desire, but you'd increase our boldness and our willingness to go and to invite and to invest in relationship and to share what Christ has done. God, I pray for those of us this morning who feel convicted around the prioritization in our life, who feel convicted to, to stay awake, to wake up and to not be distracted. Father, will you help us to make the necessary changes? And then Father, I pray for any who are here today, who that last point, get right with Jesus, is for them. Lord, I trust your timing. I trust your movement in people's lives. But if that's you today, as we continue to pray, I do want to give you the invitation. Zero pressure here. But I want to give you, I want to invite you, if you're ready, to turn. If you're ready today to say, I, I'm tired of shaking my fist at God. I'm ready to open my hand to him and to receive the grace and mercy he offers. I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, today I stop running from you. And today I stop holding you at arm's length. I know I'm a sinner. And what I deserve is what we just read in Revelation 16. But you're offering me mercy and grace and love through your son, Jesus. And today I gladly accept and I gladly receive that offer. I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. And Jesus, I trust you with my life. Thank you for saving me. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we thank you that when anyone offers that prayer in faith, you answer it. We're so grateful to be a part of what you're doing, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.